Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered. This week, we're so excited to be joined by Raj Patel, who's one of the great left uh, food writers and scholars, activists of our times. We talked to him about the hunger crisis and this pandemic. Uh, we also talked about climate-friendly agriculture that we should be doing and could be doing very soon instead, about the Green New Deal, about the Great Cowboy Strike of 1883, and much, much more. Yeah, Raj was uh, speaking to us from Texas, and we kind of covered the whole world, I would say. Uh, Daniel, you are talking to us from the great city of Philadelphia, one of my favorite cities on Earth. Uh, how's your How's your quarantine going there? Uh, yeah, I am, Kate. Thank you. Um, you know, I am eating a shocking amount of uh, frozen desserts uh, pretty late at night. Um, one of many strategies, um, probably, you know, not a great strategy, but one of many strategies to fight the isolation um, and how shitty it feels to watch the world, you know, falling apart and to have to be doing all the organizing on Zoom and, and none of it um, with each other. So I don't know. It, it's going okay. Um, but uh, these are definitely grim times. I experienced them as very grim times. I don't know. How's your quarantine going, Kate? It's going all right. I fostered a dog. So very happy about that. Um, I think I've actually been eating better than I than I usually do. Um in non-quarantine times. I, I uh, roasted a whole chicken that I bought from a local uh, local restaurant that I am supporting. Uh, I've never done that before. So I've been enjoying that. Yeah, I think I'm settling in. It's like a nice, you know, I feel like I've gotten into a good, good groove of it and um, managing to kind of uh, take care of my myself running to, you know, keep my neuroses at bay about the state of the world. Uh, so that's been, that's been nice too. That's great. Yeah. You know, I, I might start those, like, uh, I have a tiny patch of concrete, uh, outside my apartment and I might start doing those 30 minute YouTube exercise videos. Um, I am also getting about 85% of my calories from toast right now. So not, I haven't followed you onto the gourmet cooking. Yeah, well, we're all feeding ourselves, which is good. And uh, if you're feeding yourself with this audio content, uh, just a reminder that you are listening to Hot and Bothered, which is a podcast on climate politics now in the time of coronavirus and beyond, we hope. So we are produced by Colin Kinneborough and hosted by Descent Magazine, which is the longest running democratic socialist magazine in the United States. And they actually just put out a new issue. It's called Know Your Enemy. And focuses on the American right. Yeah, it's a really, really terrific uh, issue of dissent, characteristically extremely strong. Um, it's actually edited by the hosts of our sister podcast, which has the same name, uh, Know Your Enemy. The editors are Sam Adler-Bell and Matthew Sittman, and this issue is also edited with Lauren Stokes. Um, and it features some really great writers like um, Sarah Jones, my very good friend, Kirsten Weld, uh, who knows the, the far right better than, than anyone that I know, um, and it even this issue even includes uh, an interview with Ross Duthat. So this issue is very much worth uh, checking out. Please do. Uh, and you can hop over there uh, online at descentmagazine.org. Yeah, our uh, co-author, comrade, uh, Alyssa Battistoni, has a piece in it about the romance of American communism, which I'm very excited to read. And just to shout out some other uh, friends, comrades of the pod, and uh, Descent Descent fellow travelers, uh, belabored, which is uh, another descent podcast, um, has just 
been doing some really fantastic coverage uh, of, of worker uh, organizing through this time, talking about the idea of essential workers, which we get into a little bit with Raj. Um, so if you like what you hear today, um, would definitely uh, encourage you to go check out Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen's podcast. Um, as uh, as Sarah has, has been saying recently, everyone is a labor reporter now, and I, I can't think of anybody who does it better uh, than, than, than Sarah and Michelle. So, so yeah, check check out and spread the spread the dissent love and none of these podcasts uh would be possible uh without the support of their listeners uh so we too have a patreon uh essential to making sure that we can go on the air uh and to to contribute um our web address is patreon.com slash hot bothered climate that's patreon.com slash hot bothered climate if you can, if you're able to in these times, uh, chip in, you know, even just $3 a month really goes a long way. That's our keep it on the ground level. Uh, and with that, you get access to a virtual happy hour with Daniel and I and, and maybe some friends. That's right. And if you pitch in $5 a month, uh, you'll be getting us on our way to solar socialism. Uh, and you'll also get a free digital subscription to Descent Magazine, uh, which in addition, of course, it's quarterly issues, puts out articles. Um all the time, several articles a week. And by the way, that Patreon website is uh, patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. If you give $10 a month, uh, that gets you to no carbon leisure, what we're all striving for. And you will get a free ebook of A Planet to Win from Verso Books, which Daniel and I co-authored with Alyssa Battistoni, who we just mentioned, and Thea Riofrancos. That's right. And finally, if you can give us $20 a month, You'll enter the temple of public luxury, um, enter, become, become one with the temple of public luxury, uh, and you'll get a second free ebook from Verso, which could be Extreme Cities, The Peril and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change by uh, our good friend Ashley Dawson, or The Case for the Green New Deal by our other good friend um, and Pettifor. So, of course, you know, this is all um, if you can. Um, obviously, lots of folks are struggling economically in the pandemic, but those who are able to support us make it possible for our uh, you know, freelance producer, Colin Kinnebra, to make this thing happen and make it possible for absolutely anybody who wants to, to listen to our, uh, to our podcast. Yeah. And if you sign up by May 1st, because we all love celebrating the workers' holiday, uh, you will automatically get bumped up a level. So for just $5 a month, that means you get access to the happy hour, a sense of encryption, our book, uh, all, the, all the goodies. Um, and we are always looking for feedback. If there's people you think would be great to have on to the show, if there's things you desperately want us to talk about it, you just want to complain and vent because uh, you're, you know, doing at home. I encourage you not to do that, but you know it's there for you if you so choose. So get in touch. Our email address is hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com, and you can. Uh, rave about us on Twitter using the hashtag HotBotheredClimate. So let's move on now to our conversation uh, with Raj Patel. Uh, Raj Patel is a research professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas at Austin, senior research associate at the Unit for the Humanities at Rhodes University. And he's published a ton of stuff in all kinds of fantastic academic journals. He also writes for newspapers and he co-hosts, uh, he also co-hosts a podcast called The Secret Ingredient. 
His books include Stuffed and Starved and The Value of Nothing. His latest book is co-authored with Jason W. Moore, published from the University of California Press and is entitled A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, A Guide to Capitalism, Nature, and the Future of the Planet. And so, without further ado, our conversation with Raj Patel. Okay, Raj Patel, welcome to Hot and Bothered. So great to have you on. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So just to start us off, do you want to tell us a little bit about how your quarantine experience is, is going? I, I believe you're in Texas. Is that right? That's right. Um, here, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm part of the lucky 30% that gets to work from home. Um, but in Texas, where we have the largest number of uninsured, uh, the uh, you know the, the 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 situation is fraught with uncertainty. Um, the, the the city of Austin seems to be doing an admirable job of uh, managing the, the quarantine, but uh, you know, absent widespread testing, it's sort of a mystery to know quite how the state is doing. Uh, but you will have heard our uh, the lieutenant governor going on uh, on TV uh, asking people to die for the economy, uh, and that's. Uh, looks like uh, how it is that we'll be uh, coming out of this uh, you know out of this quarantine moment with uh, the, the governor insisting on things being opened up before that before it's time at least that's that's the bet I'm taking right now so relevant to kind of what you have been writing about and and thinking about for for a long time um, we're in this weird moment where I feel like food is being talked about more than it usually is um, for a number of reasons. Um, I, I don't know if you saw this sort of big story in the New York Times last weekend about the destruction of food, the sort of headlines being that uh, all of this milk is being poured out into lagoons and uh, onions are being buried at sort of a, a massive scale. Um, so it's, I was hoping, you know, if you could sort of ground us in, in, in what the the situation of, of, of food going into this um, into this crisis was, and in particular sort of around the question of hunger. The, the, what I read as the sort of Im- implicit framing of, of that New York Times piece um, was that, you know, all this food is being wasted. There's all these people who are hungry, um, but, but not really building in, you know, any, any sort of scaffolding about what the food system looks like um, and, and why, why it is that, that there is such a, a massive need for food. So, so I'm wondering, you know, to summarize, you know, probably books worth of material. Um, <laughs> if, you could, if you could tell us um, how hungry people are uh, in the United States and around the world and how much worse do you see um, this crisis as, as making that situation? Goodness, Kate. Well, well uh, the the situation wasn't pretty going into uh, into this crisis. Um, the the latest year for which we have numbers, I, I believe, is two thousand and eighteen, uh, in which there were uh, two billion people who were food insecure, uh, and uh, over eight hundred and twenty million who were malnourished. Which is to say that for a year, uh, people hadn't had sufficient uh, calories to be able to live a, a healthy life. And that was before the shit hit the fan. Uh, and in the United States, uh, we were uh, sort of approaching 40 million people who were food insecure. And, and those were the good times. Uh, the, the, those were the times where we could feel good about ourselves uh, and uh, f- feel like things were getting back to normal. Uh, before the 2008 crisis, 
we had about 35 million people who were food insecure. And then uh, within a year or two of, of the, 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 the Great Recession, uh, 50 million people were food insecure in the United States. So let's uh, just dive in with definitions here. Uh, to be malnourished is really to be uh, just not having any food at all or not having enough food to be able to thrive, right? There's just less food than you need to be able to eat. Food insecurity is uh, not knowing where your next meal is coming from and not being certain that you will be able to get a meal. And occasionally that means skipping meals. And occasionally, you know, uh, you, you see the kinds of behavior in the United States as you see elsewhere in the world where parents will skip meals so that children can eat and then children will see the parents doing that and the children will skip meals so the parents can eat. Uh, and th this kind of psychological privation is profoundly uh, damaging. Uh, it, it results in a, a range of diseases. It results in sort of an unfolding cascade of social and biological problems. Now, when I hear uh, stories about people wasting milk. You know, the milk is being just poured away, and my goodness, you know, just think of all the people that could feed. Um, I'm reminded of the kinds of tropes that we we heard before the crisis, where uh, you would hear uh, people wringing their hands about food waste and saying, "Did you know that 40% of food is wasted? And if only we could just save the food, then people would be able to eat because you know that we, we waste so much." Uh, and clearly just look around the world, look at all the hunger. If only we could bring the wasted food to the hungry, everything would be fine. Uh, and the, the, the New York Times article repeats the same mistake as these kinds of tropes of food waste, which is that the only problem that, that hungry people have is the absence of food. Uh, and I mean, I, I think that the big analytical tool you need to understand this problem is this, that food doesn't cure hunger. Because hunger is about poverty, and hunger is about dispossession and uh, oppression and exploitation. And so merely having food in your vicinity doesn't solve the problem of being able to eat. Uh, if you don't have the money, it doesn't matter that the food's being poured away. I mean, you, 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 you'll be able to drive to somewhere and find milk, but if you can't afford it, you're fucked. And that's the, that's the, the kind of uh, exacerbated trope that you see in the the, the logic of, oh, food waste will solve the problem, uh, that you, you see in the New York Times article. And I, I, I worry that what's missing from that story is the, you know, the, 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 the bigger issue around uh, the, the chronic poverty that, that preceded this crisis uh, and which is becoming acute now that the crisis is, is really beginning to bind. So let's, let's get into um, even more of these kind of chronic uh, contradictions because, you know, as Kate said, we, we could get into books on this. And of course, Raj, you've written some mm -hmm. of them. Um, but there do seem to be just these insane irrationalities that I think are surfacing even more during this um, during this crisis. So as you said, you know, hunger has a lot to do, of course, with poverty and oppression. We've had that for a very long time, and it's it's getting worse. You know, you have these huge lineups, miles and miles of cars to get into food banks, and then at the same time, um, it seems like the solution to this, quote unquote, from the Trump administration now is to lower farm workers' wages. Um, and farm workers are not exactly the biggest the highest earners out there and people literally working in the in the farm fields. And I guess the idea is that if farm workers make less, then somehow food will be more affordable to everyone else. Um, my sense from you know the work you've done is that this is not new, this idea of pitting sort of farm workers against food consumers, but we'd be insanely dumb on the left if we allowed um, that, that to happen. And yet this is, again, this kind of like recurring tension. So could you maybe say a little bit more about like, how you're reading the news on attacks on farm workers' wages and how you see that in a kind of broader context of the question of food affordability? 
Well, the way that these wage cuts are being sold by the White House um, is uh, uh, Orwellian, right? I mean, it's it's it, to to cut the wages of some of the poorest paid people in the United States is a travesty right now, precisely because uh, it, it's it's hard to be able to buy food at the moment. Uh, in some areas where uh, the number of retail outlets is small, food prices have gone through the roof. And for farm workers to have their wages cut to the bone uh, is, is just a, a, an insult to the conscience of every American. But it's being sold as wage relief, right? This is the Orwellian term that the White House have come, has come up with. Uh, wage relief is what happens when you throw, you know, when you toss uh, the lowest paid workers, often immigrants, uh, to, uh, you know, in, into the moors of poverty uh, so that farmers might have a little relief in terms of the wages they have to pay. Uh, and this is a really transparent sop to uh, Trump's rural base. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, it, it's a way in which, uh, you know, the, the White House has been able to maneuver in, in the wake of the, the devastation of the, the, the Chinese trade war that, that's been wreaked in, in rural America. And now, you know, the, the, the tariffs uh, and the bailouts that have come as a result of the, the, the tariff war just aren't enough. And so farmers, are, 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 you know, the, the White House has to confect new goodies to, to throw to farm country uh, in, into the red states so that uh, it would appear that the president has farmers' best interests at heart. Um, this is uh, just obviously bonkers because uh, there are th th there are farmers who are paying decent wages and with the labor supply uh, constricted, um, it just means that th things are going to get harder for farmers to be able to attract uh, good workers. And, and the, the, the sort of absurdity here um, is that, that you know, it, it's really interesting to look at how America treats its farm workers uh, and how xenophobia intersects with that uh, that treatment uh, compared to the rest of the world i mean look at europe europe uh, no uh, you know no stranger to xenophobia the, there've been um, barriers to european migrant workers uh, traveling into uh, into europe and so the, the french have come up with a different idea rather than uh, having wage cuts what they're doing is saying in the name of patriotism uh, you furloughed workers who used to be uh, working in the restaurant industry, go into the fields and harvest asparagus because that's the the patriotic thing to do. And and they, they, there's been some uh, success in that. And so, uh, rather than cut wages, um, they've kept the, uh, the, the the social distancing laws in place, and they've kept uh, you know they, they've kept foreigners out, uh, and instead relied on a domestic labor force. In the United States, we could never imagine uh, that uh, Donald Trump or some governor would say, in, you know, for America urban workers who have been furloughed go to the fields um, because the, the farm work has been so you know, so diminished in uh, American uh, values and esteem that it's just impossible to imagine uh, workers who are work working in uh, other parts of the food industry or other parts of, of um, the, the economy to imagine themselves being in the fields. I mean, our, our history of racism and slavery uh, has has that stain has stained so far so much the the idea of farm work that it's unthinkable. And so we do the next best thing, uh, which is just to, to uh, throw usually workers of color under the bus, um, uh, and those workers are from uh, from usually from from the global south. And just a quick clarification on that. I mean, what, it's interesting because I think for those of us, you know, who don't think and talk food all the time, there's this uh, slippage. But you're you're making a clear distinction. Farmers being the employers, right? It's not the old image of like a family farm. 
think when you're talking about farmers, you're talking about the kind of the bosses in a sense. Um, right, it could be good it. or bad or better or worse. And then the farm workers are actually the people who are literally doing the physical labor. I mean, not that the farmers don't do any, but that seems an important distinction, right? It is a huge distinction. And uh, it's it's interesting to note just the, the tropes of sort of family farm, for example, um, that, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I've written pieces which we'll discuss in a little bit with uh, Jim Goodman, who is the president of the National Family Farm Coalition. And I'm, I am, uh, I think that there's uh, a, a, a politics of family farming uh, that's about sustainability and about gender equality and uh, a, a, about, a, a, you know, wage equity. And and then there's there are family farms that are, you know, tens of thousands of hectares uh, that, that are these vast uh, empires that re- require uh, you know, that, that, that are about exploitation in the fields. Uh, and in fact, you know, the, the, the modern factory that, that we imagine as a product of the Industrial Revolution, uh, well, the modern factory first started out in, um, you know, sort of in, in the, the manufacture of sugar in, you know, in, in, in Portuguese colonies uh, in the late 1400s. You know, the idea of specialization and of workers being confined to a single role and uh, precise time management, all of that stuff, uh, is is a part of the the original kind of factory, which was uh, which was an agricultural factory. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about um, about that piece with Jim Goodman came out a little bit earlier this month in the Journal of Peasant Studies, um, called the Long New Deal, and and you know I would suggest everyone read that piece. And it's a great journal, the Journal of Peasant Studies, underrated, right? Historical journal of the left. Well, yes, and and uh, it, it it doesn't sound like the kind of journal that's filled with ripping yarns and and uh, readable prose, but it turns out it is. Uh, and um, for a little while, anyway, the, the article that Jim and I put together is available for free. Um, so if if you want to take a you dip your toe into uh, um, academic writing, um, it's not that bad, particularly if you ignore everything that's in brackets. Uh, we tried to make it as readable as we could. Well, it's it's very readable. Um... And just to, to give folks a little taste, I mean, it's called the Long New Deal, and you sort of situate the original New Deal uh, in the context of class struggle in the United States, um, which had been happening for decades and decades before, and then, you know, move into the talking about the Green New Deal, which we will ask you, you know, a, a lot about in a bit. Um, but I wanted to focus on this episode, which I had never heard of before reading uh, your piece, and which I think... Is, is fascinating in our current moment to think about, which is the great cowboy strike of 1883. And in particular, I mean, we were just talking about farm workers. And I, I think there's been a really interesting conversation since the coronavirus shutdowns have happened about who is and is not an essential worker. You know, what what is the kind of labor required to keep society going? And what we've seen is that actually a lot of, a lot of that work is very underpaid. Uh, and a lot of it is, you know, I think what um, folks in the economy and on the left would call sort of the labor of social reproduction. Um, so, you know, this work that is, uh, I think it's fair to say is considered uh, less productive in, in a sort of traditional capitalistic sense. Um, but the the cowboys who you write about have a sort of interesting take uh, on, on that question of what work is and isn't essential. Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of introduce folks to, to what this strike was, um, and and you know, talk about it sort of in in the context of, of what we're you know going through now. Um, well, th- thank you, Kate. You you put it as as always much better than I could. Uh, th- that this is a, a, a moment in which uh, you know the, the invisible uh, 
labor force um, that, that that feeds America and you know and invariably underpaid labor force, uh, which you know seven out of the ten worst paying jobs in America are in the food system. Um, those workers are now seen as essential and uh, nonetheless uh, are being thrown in harm's way with uh, little to no protection uh, and uh, just being asked to, to, to sacrifice their lives so that uh, the, the rest of us can, uh, can, can make it through our enforced quarantine. Um, but what, what's being concomitantly, you know, you, you've, you've written about this uh, and you've, 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 you've seen it and you've reported it, uh, the, the, the work is, uh, you know, you're seeing unionizing efforts emerging from unexpected places and you're seeing it emerge uh, in the front lines of, um, you know, of Amazon and you're, you're seeing it emerge through Insta Instacart strikes uh, and you're seeing it where grocery workers are working, walking off the job uh, to demand, uh, you know, fair wages. Uh, and the the cowboy strike is an example precisely of uh, of how it is that, that food workers uh, or workers through the food chain um, have been doing this for ages. Um, and part of the, uh, you know, the, the importance of the strike is um, that it surfaces a number of things that, that we've forgotten. First of all, uh, you know, we have this idea of cowboys being sort of um, white dudes sitting in saddles, perhaps chewing straw uh, or tobacco and being by themselves uh, and just being these sort of independent small business entrepreneur types. Uh, but they weren't. They were hired labor. Um, they, they worked together as teams. Uh, there was uh, a range of people um, that there were people of color who were cowboys. And uh, what they wanted was wage equality. And they, they wanted decent wages for, for the work that they did. And they wanted to be able to be paid enough so that they would be able to survive the off season. Um, they wanted dignity in, they were, in their work. They wanted good coffee. They wanted uh, you know, uh, recreational equipment. Uh, and they also demanded that uh, people who did the cooking also be paid the same wage as people who were doing uh, the, the herding of cows. Uh, and this idea of you know, the, the, the workers would recognize uh, the importance of reproductive labor, that they wouldn't recognize racial distinctions, so that they, in fact, they would demand uh, equality and the chance to be the top hand or the lead cowboy, regardless of race. Uh, these are ideas that are often forgotten. Um, and why are they forgotten? Well, at the time of the cowboy strike and since, um, they were written out uh, of, 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 the, of the mainstream. Their demands were uh, soft pedal. When The Economist writes, writes about it, as, as they did in the 1880s, or when the Chicago newspapers wrote, wrote about it, it was always the boss's perspective uh, that held sway. The, the workers uh, were never given you know, anything like favorable coverage. Uh, and then they, you know, the, 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 the actual history of the cowboy strike was layered over and erased because it, pre it presented too much of an awkward challenge to uh, the idea that everyone was, you know, that all Americans were unified in the idea of uh, you know, the westward expansion and uh, the, the genocide of indigenous people and uh, you know, the, the extinction of, of wild bison. Uh, and th that, you know, to, to be able to, to flip that on its head and say, no, actually th th there were people who were uh, particularly at the boundaries of indigenous territory and settled territory who, who were sympathetic to uh, indigenous struggles, who were uh, engaged with wall-to-wall uh, you know, -wall union organizing and who are fighting their bosses. That's an important reminder that, in fact, this is a, a trend that has gone throughout American history. And, uh, and they understood well, not just that their bosses were exploiting them, but that their bosses were part of long chains of capital that reached globally. 
And, and I think this is one of the interesting moments that we might be missing, not just in terms of the New Deal, but, but right now, is uh, that uh, historically when these movements of workers have come together, they've always understood the critical role of finance in their subjugation. Uh, and I hope that we get to talk about that a little bit as we explore the importance of strikes like the cowboy strike uh, to our present moment. Because um, while it's true that we're able to, to look at the bailout package uh, and see that it is in many ways just a giveaway uh, to the 1%, um, what movements in the past have done is not just uh, you know, observe that that problem, but have undertaken uh, specific actions to, to strike back at Wall Street. And I think that that if, if we are to articulate a, a decent new Green New Deal in this moment, uh, then we, we need the critique of finance that the cowboys had, that uh, their, their, their sort of descendants in the populist movement had, and that uh, their descendants in turn in the New Deal also had. Brilliant. Th thank you so much for that history. Um... It's, you know, as somebody who was obsessed with cowboys growing up, I feel like I would have made it all the way over to the left three or four years earlier um, if I had known about the strike. Well, if, if you'd have been an Indian, um, you'd, have, you'd have started uh, right there on the left. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so um, let's kind of jump back now to the present. And I think we want to dig into, just as you said, the sort of political strategies of getting that Green New Deal for agriculture and taking on finance. Um just before we get into the how we get there, let's talk just for a minute about exactly what the vision is um, for what we're where we're trying to get. Uh, I think at this point, you know, the Green New Deal in the abstract has to kind of give way to what is a response to this uh, horrible blend of crises we're in right now, economic crisis, health crisis, food crisis, and so on. So um, I think you've got some involvement, if I'm not mistaken, with the international panel of um, experts on um, sustainable food systems. Is that right? That's right. I am. I am one of the experts in the so-called International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yes. And you know, you sent us their their communique that I believe is out this week, um, and it's a really great piece of writing. Um, and uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, and I, you know, one of the things that the, this kind of communique lays out is the notion of what we should be doing in terms of getting out of this crisis. And one of the the things that's discussed is building, um, you know, much more agroecological food regime. So maybe could you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what kinds of farming we need to be starting as, as soon as possible and as broadly as possible? So part of the reason that we're in this mess in the first place is because, uh, as far as we know, uh, this, this virus jumped from uh, species to species because of the encroachment of, uh, you know, of, of different species on top of each other, and then uh, the, the routing of that through food markets. So th there's uh, a direct implication of the food system uh, and its expansion and the, the sort of wanton war on nature in the coronavirus. Now, uh, part of the problem is that, uh, you know, we've been dodging bullets for so long that it feels like a right. Uh, you know, we've we've dodged H1N1, we dodged SARS, uh, and yeah, and of course, when I say we, uh, there are still many people died uh, in both of these uh, outbreaks, and a lot of new diseases, uh, zoonotic diseases, come from the food system. For example, when you have bird flu, that's something that emerges through uh, the you know having concentrated animal feeding operations in which you've got so much. Um, 
genetic uniformity that a disease can just burn through an entire uh, flock pretty quickly and then burn through the rest of the food chain because there are no biodiversity fire breaks, as my friend Rob Wallace uh, calls them. So uh, we have monocultures, we have single crops, and uh, sometimes when the, the circumstances are just right, these crops can yield a ton. But remember, yielding a ton doesn't mean people get fed, it just means they yield a ton. The problem is that they are vulnerable uh, to precisely, if, you know, if, one does, if, if a disease can kill one, it can kill all, because with uniformity comes this kind of systemic vulnerability. Uh, what agroecology is, is uh, creating uh, biodiversity. It's about farming without uh, the industrial chemistry um, that poisons the soil and the water, um, but instead uh, relies on regenerative practices that build soil, that recognize the, the value and intelligence of labor in uh, uh, recognizing specific problems on the farm and treating them uh, not with chemistry, but with footsteps and intelligence. Uh, so a, a good agroecological farm is one that is biodiverse, uh, that has lots of sort of built-in protections um, uh, around you know, vulnerability and exposure. So, you know, if, if a, a particular crop doesn't thrive in a particular year, uh, that's okay because there can be uh, spaces in that farm where other things do better. So the, the, the sort of classic example is um, in Cuba where uh, you had plantain polycultures, like you had big plantains, small plantains, uh, you know, uh, crops that were good for fixing nitrogen, beans, you had food crops, you had medicine crops, you had uh, textile crops. And when a hurricane tore through and felled some of the big plantains, it wasn't the end of the world. You didn't have a catastrophic loss like you did in the plantain monocultures. Instead, uh, the medium plantains did better and then the light reached the ground and you had a lot of the ground cover crops doing better. And so uh, farms were able to turn around their fortunes in within 60 days of a, of a catastrophic hurricane, as opposed to uh, 90 to 120 days for um, you know for, for industrial systems. So agroecology is a system that's about biodiversity and about social diversity to be able to uh, recognize and employ more people on the land and recognize the value and intelligence of those people uh, in a way that generates food that is uh, sustainable, seasonal, and uh, available to all. So Raj, I want to dig in on another aspect of this question of agroecology and. That's the question of how does that fit into our broader uh, vision of what the Green New Deal is like? Um, I think certainly Kate and I have argued, and I think this is consistent with a broad set of kind of left arguments around uh, sustainability, that the, the vision we're hopefully going towards is a vision where people are working fewer hours, consuming fewer things, um, that the economy shifts really to being focused on, on care work, taking care of each other, taking care of the, of the living world. And so at the end of the day, it's about less you know, labor from us and also consuming fewer objects, fewer end tables, less fast fashion, more time playing soccer, more time in the park, more time uh, making art. And that is a vision that ultimately is kind of like moving away from difficult physical labor and having a less material intensive form of existence. But that seems not to be the vision um, of agriculture. That is the kind of left and sustainable vision of agriculture, which if I understand uh, your own work uh, correctly has to do with more people um, working, ideally, of course, not in backbreaking conditions, but more people working, um, fewer mechanical inputs, certainly fewer uh, chemical inputs, right? And that the share that one, you know, if there's any kind of market at all, the share that consumers spend on food should, in theory, I think, go way up. Well, you're right uh, that 
when we think about uh, the uh, you know, a, a way of reconnecting to our planet, food is one of the ways to do that. Uh, and uh, the it's certainly if if we uh, if if we want to, to to be aware of the world around us, then the industrial food system is a shitty way of uh, understanding you know where and when we are because we can get ultra processed food off the shelves anytime uh, but the idea of a sustainable food system uh, is, is a system that reminds us uh, of the seasons we're in and the location that we're in uh, and uh, I, I think that part of uh, a a better food system does involve more recognition of the importance of farm work so when I imagine what we'll be eating under a Green New Deal. What I imagine is that um, you know, we, we either will be uh, volunteering and giving our labor to, to farms freely when it is needed at harvest time, for example, and I imagine that uh, there will be land reform, uh, not only to restore land to the indigenous people who, um, for, from whom much of the land in this country is, has been stolen, um, but also uh, to allow more sustainable agriculture to happen with the, the thousands of, of young people who would love to get into farming but can't afford to do it. And I imagine uh, that there is room for farm workers uh, who would, you know, who, who would migrate here, who would want the, this work to be paid handsomely. Uh, and again, you know, what, what we have in, in the United States is a regime of cheap food where, uh, you know, just to put it into context, 6.4% of uh, consumer expenditure in the United States is on food, whereas in, uh, say, Austria, it's near nearly 10%. Uh, and the issue is that in, in other parts of the world, people are prepared to pay for uh, for the pleasure of eating well and for food that is grown in ways that are consonant with um, sustainable practices, recognizing often the value of labor. And in the United States, uh, you know, as I've said, you know, the, we treat workers in the food system as entirely disposable. So under an agroecological system, I imagine that we will be paying more for food and that that's a good thing. Because at the moment we get away with paying workers a pittance, and by you know having these shortcuts of uh, agricultural subsidies and subsidies through the, the pollution that uh, you know industrial agriculture is allowed to generate, and the risks that industrial agriculture is allowed to, to bear on our backs, like the risks for z- epidemic zoonotic disease, and under a sustainable system, uh, we price into the the food system all of those risks. Obviously, we'll pay more for food, but the outcome I think will be more dignified work. Work, not drudgery, but dignified work with our hands in the ground for many more people being paid much better in a way that reconnects many more of us to the soil on which we all depend. Right. And just to, to clarify, because I think this links up really well with some of what you were saying earlier when we were talking about, you know, this, this terrible notion of cutting farm workers' wages. Uh, but instead, we're talking about actually raising the wages of, of all workers, right, so that everybody can afford to eat um, the good food that they want. We're not paying tons of money for things like private health insurance. Um, but that um, that we're instead of pitting farmers versus you know food consumers, instead the wages in both sectors are are going up. Um, so that like exactly like you were saying, you know we can pay handsomely for the really good work of making really good food, and that indeed that becomes an option for anyone who wants to do that that kind of work. That's right. Yes, we're, 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 this isn't about consumers versus producers. Um, this is about consumers and, and producers, you know, being hand in hand in terms of uh, being connected to the soil in different ways, uh, but also being connected to to one another in bonds, not of exploitation, but of solidarity. Yeah, and I, I want to um, 
maybe transition us a little bit uh, on that note to talking talking about um, the Green New Deal, which um, you know I think agroecology is not. Um, been a central part of necessarily um and it, you know as you just laid out and have done um done so much work on uh this is not you know just a question of what happens on the farm this is you know transforming our food system involved very long supply chains very you know uh, diffuse uh sites of production so we, we were talking about you know the sort of uptick of um of strikes in the food sector uh, kind of across food supply chains, which are coming after, um, you know, what you point out is is a, a spike, but a modest spike um, in strike activity in the last year. Uh, I think, as as you write, you know, 0.1 percent of the U.S. population participated um, in strikes in in 2018, I believe, and that is, you know, in relief of the last decade or so. A couple decades pretty high in relief to 1937, not so much. Um, so, you know, as we're seeing this sort of upsurge of, of, of strikes, uh, Instacart, um, you know, people uh, working even at places like GE, uh, kind of putting a claim to what they're producing. How do you think people who are interested in a Green New Deal should be thinking about this moment and in particular this kind of, you know, labor power that we're seeing exert itself? Well, I mean, right now, um, in, in the midst of the pandemic, it, it may be worth remembering that uh, the, the high point, at least that I could find in the data of US strike activity happened the year after the, the 1918 pandemic. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that, uh, at least in Canada, for instance, workers were able successfully to, de- to demand uh, certain kinds of access to healthcare that they didn't have before, as a result of the pandemic, and as, as a result of being thrust into an economy that uh, actually looks a, a little bit like what the, uh, the the Green New Deal might you know m- might one day uh, reimagine us doing. Right? I mean, the, the the Green New Deal is about a demand for an economy that recognizes and values. Um, you know, the, the shorthand is care and repair, as 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 y'all have written about in A Planet to Win, which of course everyone needs to read. Now, uh, the the idea of of this this sort of vision of care and repair uh, is a lot like what we're doing at the moment. I mean, we're we're doing it individually as you know as households, uh, where you know we're engaging uh, those of us who who are involved in reproductive labor, uh, engaging quite a lot of the day in in reproductive labor and recognizing the value of that reproductive labor, whether it's caring for elders or caring for children um, or caring for the food system or caring, you know, actually growing things. Uh, and uh, we're also you know, finding ourselves uh, engaging in the, the, the sort of repair of the world around us. Um, now, that work of care and repair is what needs to be socialized. Um, and uh, the, the pandemic in 1918 gave a, a moment to uh, to recognize the importance of that. Uh, and the, the the Great Depression also uh, brought those you know the the the, the dire necessity of uh, the support for care and repair to the front. Uh, and uh, I think what, what what's important for uh, for us to remember right now uh, is that the victories. Uh, that we take for granted that came from the New Deal only came from relentless strike activity. Um, we see after the 1918 pandemic that there were strikes, but actually every year of the New Deal, there were more and more strikes 
It's not like the New Deal came along and then all of a sudden workers went home happy and you know whistling to themselves. Uh, in fact, the the sign of the the success uh, of the New Deal was increasing confrontation and polarization. Uh, and that idea that workers were building power through the New Deal is evinced in the numbers of strikes. And in, in particular, uh, some of the, the significant strike activity in the original New Deal happened again here in Texas. It, I mean, it just happens to be that now that I live in Texas, I'm be able to see, able to see an amazing labor history that's erased from, from Texas, because again, Texas doesn't portray itself as the labor state. But for example, a, a lot of the victories won against the Immigration and Naturalization Service in the 1930s happened because of strike activity in the pecan shellers here in, uh, in, in San Antonio in Texas. Uh, and that's really important because uh, when we think not just about the New Deal, but the New Deals that need to happen around the world, often they're framed as national uh, ideas, that they're, they're about one country doing the right thing by citizens of that country. But we live in a globalized world. And if you look at who's going to be hit hardest by, by COVID, uh, it's, and look where we began with the story of hunger. Who is it that's going to go the most hungry? It's not necessarily the migrant farm workers. It's the people who depend on their money. It's the people who depend on global flows of remittances, which dwarf international aid. There's way more international remittances and transfers than there are international donations from the United States, which is a fairly stingy country in that way, but from you know all, all the sort of global uh, donor class or from concessional lending from the World Bank or wherever. Uh, migrant remittance flows are the lifeblood of many economies. And when, as Modi does in India, you shut down the possibilities of migration and work, who is it you're killing? You're not just exposing workers to, to savage conditions where they are, where they're locked down, but you're cutting off the vital income that is required to feed people in countries that are poorer than India. So look to Bangladesh, for example, for... Uh, epic levels of malnutrition in the in the coming months. Look to countries that are dependent on inflows of migrant capital um, and uh, of remittances. Uh, and if we're imagining a new deal, then we have to recognize the vital importance of migrants, not just in terms of uh, the work that happens in situ, but the, the, the important contribution of migrants in being able to make transformation happen in the countries where their money goes and where they are uh, essentially facilitating the reproductive labor of other people. You mentioned a little bit earlier the um, the question of finance, and one of the great things in your piece in the Journal of Peasant Studies, um, and that was also in this fantastic article you and Jim Goodman wrote for Jacobin, is this question of coalitions, you know, and the Gramscian concept of the hegemonic bloc, which maybe we don't have to get into right now, but let's say at a more basic level, you know, for the Green New Deal to win, it has to assemble a broad coalition, and that coalition obviously has to involve people in, in non-urban parts of the country. Um, in your journal Peasant Studies article, you report somebody telling you that the Green New Deal is, quote, fucking toxic, unquote, um, in, in rural America. So, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, from you as we try to organize, you know, in solidarity with migrant workers, as we try to build up this new ag agroecological system, who are the members of the coalition that we need that we should be talking to? Well, I mean, I think part of part of the issue here is the the sort of longer tra trajectory of the way that the Democratic Party has betrayed rural America, um, and you know, really since the end of Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, there hasn't been an opportunity uh, missed by the Democratic Party to really put the knife into um, rural communities. I mean, it, it's been a bipartisan effort uh, from. 
Republicans and Democrats to uh, undermine uh, the, the the sort of conditions of possibility of thriving rural communities um, by encouraging the kind of farm consolidation that was in some ways inaugurated by the original New Deal. And so when uh, an initiative like the Green New Deal associated with the Democratic Party emerges uh, all, you know, seemingly fully formed uh, after a full sort of 72, 72 hours of brainstorming in um, in a Washington, D.C. office. It's not surprising that, um, you know, large, potentially progressive members of, of uh, a radical coalition uh, will feel a little hard done by uh, because the, the, the pattern seems to be repeating itself that, uh, you know, the, the call for a Green New Deal didn't seem to have much for rural America other than saying that you know we need healthy food for all. And I, th- I think that this is a failure of the process of uh, the way that the Green New Deal legislation was written out. You know, n- now that it's happened, it's happened, uh, and lessons have been learned, I think. Um, but it, it, you know, insofar as there is a way to build uh, you know th- this counter hegemonic block, it is by uh, you know, r- engaging in the sort of uh, on the boots on the ground organizing that uh, friends, for example, in the Working Families Party have been doing in in some some of the key states, uh, and working with groups that are um, part of you know some of the larger farm uh, organizations like the National Farmers Union. So, as Jim and I noted in our uh, piece, uh, the National Farmers Union nationally had some fairly dim things to say about the Green New Deal. But some members of the uh, the National Farmers Union um, were very much in favor of the Green New Deal. Uh, and in general, those ambassadors uh, are the best ways of persuading other people in rural areas that the Green New Deal can and must work. Uh, and must work for rural America. So, uh, I mean, I certainly think that in terms of building the Green New Deal's um, coalition, uh, working with the farmers and ranchers who are already for a Green New Deal is vital. Um, But there will be difficult conversations ahead because, uh, as you noted, Daniel, uh, in in some contexts, the farmers are the bosses. And uh, for bosses and workers to find that common ground is going to be hard. and uh, I mean, I, I can see I can see some of that happening, uh, and I, I you know I, I'm pleased that the National Family Farm Coalition and other members of La Via Campesina, the international peasant movement uh, in in the United States, uh, have already begun some of these conversations. And here, the union movement has some really good ideas. Um, so uh, the, uh, commer- the 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 commercial workers union has. Uh, has some terrific ideas about uh, cooperatively owned uh, farmland and cooperatively owned uh, retail outlets that that are unionized. Uh, And to have a different kind of food chain in which union labor, uh, unionized hands are the only hands that will be on the uh, the food from seed to plate. These are really dramatically new visions of what a food system might look like that don't rest on the old ideas of family farms and you know the, the gendered exploitation that sometimes comes along with that. Uh, so I, I think that there are there's room here for uh, a number of coalitions to come together or a number of actors to come together from the big farm organizations to unions who have some very good ideas about what to do here uh, to uh, you know groups like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, the, the Food Chain Workers Alliance. There are a lot of groups who are very interested in all of this. And I think in part, uh, you know, the speed and the rapidity of, with which 
the uh, you know the the the, uh, the original Green New Deal was sort of penned left them out. Um, but I think in the organizing moment that we have now, there's there's a chance for us to to come together in new ways, particularly as we imagine uh, how it is that a, a good food system can be part of uh, a carbon sequestering uh, and sustainable future. Let me just push you one kind of piece of what you were saying. There are different, a lot of different, essentially, class interests, but also basically financial relationships um, mm-hmm. and financial interests represented in the food sector, obviously. And you know, the role of crop insurance um, is, is important. It essentially, if I understand correctly, the way the insurance is currently set up is it incentivizes farmers to do things that we really wouldn't want them to do. In other words, to create crop, grow crops in a way that causes the carbon emissions, that causes extreme weather that they're insuring against. Um, mm-hmm. If if we're going to break, um, if we're going to break apart the relationship between a large part of the food sector and an alliance with finance, that seems like that's pretty challenging because it essentially involves um, breaking up the basic systems of income security that a lot of these um, produ- food producers have, if, if I understand uh, correctly. So is that, I mean, do we have to essentially give up on those who are getting farm, you know, large amounts of farm insurance? Is it, are there, is it possible to win a coalition for reforms to this insurance system where people are willing to give up what they have for something unknown? I mean, I guess I'm just curious, like what you see as the, the most straightforward immediate wedge between the finance industry and the food sector? In part, uh, one of the, the, the ideas that's been uh, entertained by a number of farmers is a, a New Deal idea, which in turn is a populist idea, um, which is uh, for, the, for something called parity pricing. Uh, and that's where instead of having this sort of complex system of, of crop insurance, um, the government provides uh, a, a way of uh, paying for fixed amounts of crops uh, at a uh, at a given parity price. And the idea of parity here is that uh, it should allow farmers to be able to afford the industrial machinery that they need to be able to farm their, their, their land. At least that, that's the origins of the term parity pricing. But basically the idea is that farmers should be guaranteed a fair price uh, so that they can go about their activities in ways that are that allow them to be uh, recipients of a dignified income, but uh, also the, in which the government bears um, not just an insurance provides not just an insurance function, but a storage function and a limit uh, and provides limits on the amounts of crop that can be grown. Uh, and the advantage of this idea of parity pricing is that it's known. It's not something new. It's actually giving up uh, something that's shitty and con- contemporary for something that is. Uh, that, that at least appears to be, to be well proven uh, through the, the, the Great Depression. Now, uh, Jim and I differ on the, the viability and the desirability of parity pricing, but there are a number of different models that one can imagine for managing risk uh, in the food system. Uh, and in fact, right now, you know, that, that we're, we're experiencing a, 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 a sort of an efflorescence of uh, different ways of managing risk in the food system. Um, and we're seeing, as you know, we, we began this conversation with the milk being poured away. Um, and in part, the, you know, this is the, the, the burying of crops uh, and the overproduction of crops is something that w- it was facilitated by these long supply chains guaranteed by, um, you know, by crop insurance. Um, the shorter supply chains, things like community-supported agriculture, also have an insurance mechanism built into it. Uh, and it's it's just worth bearing in mind that if you engage in something called community-supported agriculture, what you do is uh, you 
pay a down payment. Like in my case, it's $300 for, uh, for three months. Uh, and you get every week a delivery of, or you, know, you have to pick up uh, a, a box of groceries of w- whatever it is that comes from the farm. And now in a community supported agriculture chain where, where the, the farmer sells shares uh, and enough of these shares come to the farmer at the beginning of the harvest, that's an insurance mechanism because no matter what happens on the farm, the farmer gets the, the, the cash uh, and is able to pay the workers and is able to put the crops in the ground. Now, uh, everyone who buys a share uh, shares in the outcome. If, if you know something catastrophic happens on the farm, then we, we get nothing. But that's a way of socializing the risk in a way that is different from the crop insurance scheme that we have at the moment. And there are lots of these schemes that are, are around right now. Uh, and when we imagine other ways of ensuring uh, you know, our, our food supply, it's important to recognize that there are, we're already doing it in some ways. Uh, some of these are sort of lateral mutual aid schemes. Some of these are sort of monetized community-supported agriculture schemes. Uh, and there are uh, there's a multiplicity of things, contemporary and in history, that we might turn to. Uh, and so I, I don't think it's that hard to imagine uh, to, to recruit farmers away from uh, the sort of the succubus of, uh, of of the finance industry, particularly at this moment when it's clear that finance is, you know, is and always has been out for blood. But when when farmers are bled dry, uh, this is a good time to be to be offering these other kinds of lifeline. Yeah, I also had a follow up on that. Having covered uh, the Green New Deal and climate um, so much of, of you know what what you've raised about about farming just rings so true about the union conversation um, around. Yeah around any, you know, any sort of climate policy. And I think in particular, um, the Green New Deal and Daniel was sort of bringing this up, but but it seems like there's these this thing that happens where there is a very legitimate um, demand around inclusion and sort of a drafting process. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what, who's at the table um, when something has come up with. And I, I feel like the thing that can get a little bit buried in that um, is that that, you know, can in the conversation about it sort of supersede just very real material interests that people have. I mean, we're just talking about insurance. Um, I think in the case of, you know, climate policy and particularly sort of building trades, there are, you know, jobs that people have now that um, will not exist if, if, you know, we transition off of fossil fuels. And so so as a last question, I'm wondering, you know, knowing what you do about about the New Deal um, and and some of the sort of, you know, interesting kind of democratic experiments that (laughs) happened, um, some, you know, better than others um, as part of the agricultural New Deal. Mm -hmm. um, What do you you see as the role for democracy in this? I mean, you'll know this better than I do, Kate, but uh, I mean, Part of the um, the problem of the of, of imagining and working on a green new deal under uh, a fossil fuel economy that was running at full steam was it was like trying to do sort of spinal surgery while someone was running, uh, and that you know it's it, it's hard to imagine uh, changing things while the, the sort of locomotion of uh, of the, while the locomotive of industrial capitalism was. Um, uh, you know, uh, running at full tilt. Um, right now, uh, I imagine it might be easier to have the the conversations about jobs that may not exist uh, when jobs are uh, you know in in certain certain parts of the construction trade trade certainly here in in Austin um, that they're still non essential. 
Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, the, the way that I've always thought about this this question of democracy uh, has always been about how um, th- there's th- it is through organizing that uh, workers get to ask the question, uh, what what is it that I really want? What what is it th- that cannot be compromised? What what what's what's the pure vision here? What's on the horizon? Uh, and when you're you know w- when you're so concerned about making sure that the job that you have doesn't go away, uh, it's hard to look up to the horizon. In some cases, uh, the uh, and, and again, the New Deal was an opportunity for this. The, 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 the original New Deal was an opportunity for organizers to go into communities of uh, unemployed workers and have these discussions. Uh, the, the, the tragedy, of course, right now is that you know, to, to have conversations in public about uh, the limits of capitalism is impossible uh, under uh, under these quarantine regulations. And of course, you've, you've seen um, and written about how uh, th- this is an opportunity in which uh, some governors are already rolling back the rights of union uh, workers to be able to organize. Uh, this is uh, you know, the opportunity that capitalists have been waiting for. Um, but I, I do see that in you know in as the economy starts as these quarantine regulations start to uh, allow certain kinds of engagement, um, the, the the work of organizers now is precisely to be able to um, fashion and articulate the, the the intelligence and the demands of working class workers, whether whether in the fields or uh, you know on on the factory line, lines about what it is that might be different. And I see a critical role for the organizers in the food system who are already doing this work. I mean, it's very interesting to track um, the just the, the the way in which, for example, if you go to food chain, the food chain workers, you <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the food chain workers uh, 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 alliance uh, and see their see the amount of work that's coming out of every part of the food system. Uh, and if you go to uh, the, the uh, Health, Environment, uh, Agriculture and Labor Alliance, the uh, Heal Alliance, uh, th- they are also doing an incredible amount of on the ground organizing because precisely at the moment that, that these workers are uh, deemed essential, uh, they are also articulating and they're, they're recognizing this is a moment of power. And I, I'm, I'm seeing that this is a moment in which actually this democracy is working uh, for them better than it has in the past. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I think the way to be able to track this democracy is precisely through uh, the, the emergence of strikes. I mean, I, I think strikes are a very good proxy for democracy. Um, uh, and you know, often we think of democracy as <clears throat> the right to be able to you know, use the ballot box. And, and of course we must defend that right and defend the, the postal service. Um, which we'll be dependent on uh, as we we try and cast our postal ballots. Uh, but much more important than that, I think, is is precisely the, the democratic praxis of striking and of occupying public space and using that public space to articulate these new demands and to recruit. Strikes are fantastic opportunities for recruitment. Uh, and I, I, I think that this is, you know, it's certainly in the food chain, um, a, a moment of uh, both crisis, and I'm 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 not in any way uh, uh, trying try to sort of gloss over uh, the crisis that many comrades in the food movement are facing right now, precisely because they are both essential and exploited and in harm's way. Uh, but also recognizing that uh, this is a moment in which they're recognizing, as their forebears have, uh, the power that they have uh, in you know, compared to Wall Street, and that to me is a good sign for democracy.
thank you for sticking with us with this fabulous interview with Raj Patel. Um, I know that I learned a, a ton and had a great time. Uh, so a quick reminder, uh, if you like what you're hearing, and if you are able, if you are able to support uh, the production of this podcast, um, please head over to patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. Well, with that, Daniel, everyone listening, stay hot. Stay bothered. Stay inside. <laughs>